Well, grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel 11, 2 Samuel 11, and uh, so I'm going to do you a little bit of a favor this morning. Um, this text that we're looking at, uh, every, every aspect we'll look at, every point we'll make could be a sermon in of itself. So for one, um, this will allow us to uh, do, do a Christmas series, Lord willing, starting next week. And the other is, my goal is for us to get out in time to eat and come back for choir practice tonight at 5 o'clock. So is that, is that, is that, is that fair? Big go. All right. Good deal. Well, uh, 2 Samuel 11, page 282 of you pew Bibles, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. We want to start in verse 4, and we'll go down to the end of the chapter. Writer of 2 Samuel writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent a word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not dare go down to his house. And they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said, Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah, Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of, of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him. He may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men, and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he struck the messenger. When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. Then the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. The archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Then you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the word of sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's go with her. Our Father, as always, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears, our hands and our feet and our mouth, that we will go in obedience to Christ, transformed by the gospel, uh, that... This passage is a warning, but it is not our story. The truth is we know that this is our story. May we find grace in the arms of a loving Savior. 
whose blood is sufficient for us. Born in a manger, died upon a tree. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. I meant to put the old ad up on the screen, and, and, and I just now realize I, I forgot to do that. But I trust you remember from back in the 80s and 90s, for you young people, that was several decades ago. Um, there was an ad, that, and I remember them whenever I was a kid. It, 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 you would have a guy who would, who would say, he'd pick up an egg. You remember what he'd say? This is your brain, right? And then he'd crack it, and he'd throw it on the skillet, and it'd start to fry, right? And, he, and what do we say then? This is your brain on drugs. And don't forget the end of it. Any questions? Right? No, they're all solved, right? You answered them all for me. Well, in the 90s, the one I remember was similar to that, but it added a little flair to it. It was a young woman who, who was in her kitchen, and she did that. This is your brain. This is your brain on heroin is the version I remember. It is drugs. And then you remember what, what she did, right? She, 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 instead of putting it in the skillet, she took the skillet and she smashed the egg with the, with the bottom of it, right? And then she goes, here's your brain on heroin. Here's your brain on drugs. And then, then you remember she did. She took it and it goes, and this is your family. And she takes the skillet and she tears all the, the dishes. And, then, and this, is, this is your career. And she smashes more things in the kitchen. And she starts naming all this stuff. Your marriage and, and your children and the people you love and, and your, 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 your wealth. And, she just, she, and, and what's left is just an absolute mess. You remember those commercials, right? This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. And we, we get the point. Any questions? I think we can almost do something similar here with this text. So far, we have seen David. But here we see David, the sinner. And what we could say that this is your life, but this text is your life with unrepentant sin. And it's ugly. We have talked a lot here in the previous weeks about the issue of temptation and how David falls for that temptation. And, and what we see starting really in verse 4, where the act of sin is committed, uh, the, the, the downfall of David and what sin does, not just to David, but to those he is called to lead and he is called to love. Let's start here with uh, this in verse four, we see that sin defiles. Now, please, please, please come out tonight. I, I want us to spend an entire evening on this subject, so we can only uh, do do a, a cliff note version of this. But but it, the scripture is very clear that sin has a staining effect. There's a detail here in verse 4 that, I'll be honest, having three or four weeks to, to look at this text has been helpful to me because I don't know what to do with this. Uh, let's see if, see if you know what to do with it. So David sent messengers who took her, and she came to him. He lay with her. Parentheses. Now she had been purifying herself for her uncleanness. Referencing here her, her cycle. Now, the Bible talks about what the law has to say about it. We won't go into all the details. You can, there's, there's just one reference. There's, there's others we, we can look at. But what is clear is that for a week, a woman is unclean by Mosaic law. Okay? Right? And so I remember whenever I was, I was reading this, like, why are we getting this detail? This is not, a, not really important to the story, but it really is important to the story. Because notice the chronology of it. She goes from a period of cleanness to a period of ceremonially uncleanness for seven days. She has now come out of that period of uncleanness. And who is knocking on her door? See, it's not an accident that in the story, Bathsheba is bathing. She's going through the process of purification. She is clean. 
And then comes David. What does he do? He defiles her. He makes her unclean, makes himself unclean. Here she is having been cleansed, and David comes to defile. Sin has a staining effect. Now, the Bible uses a lot of words to describe this. Words like unclean or filth or staining, dirty, pollution, impurity, or even shame. And, and the way it works is, is that we think sin is just doing something bad. It's a whoopsie-daisy, driving too fast down the highway. No big deal. I'll just try to be a good little boy, little girl next time. What we often fail to see is the staining effects of sin. It does something to the soul, and not just mine, but particularly those whom we sin against. And we see that here. Not only is David stained, but he stains Bathsheba. He stains Uriah. He stains Israel that he is called to lead and to love. And chances are, on your own soul, right now, there is a stain. Maybe you're the victim of the sins of others. Maybe you freely engage in an activity that you just can't seem to quit. Maybe you're thinking that just simply showing up to church will will just just, just the mere religiosity of it will will get rid of that, that stain. And that's not the way it works. Sin defiles Sin makes us unclean, but the, the hope of the gospel is that he makes us clean. Have you ever like tried to read through the Old Testament, right? Maybe you get through Genesis, you skip the genealogies. You won't say that out loud because we're too spiritual, but you skip the genealogies. You get the Exodus, you read the first 20 chapters, you skip the part about the tabernacle, but then you get into Leviticus, right? And on page one, you're like, skip 100 pages. Let's see, there's war in Joshua. Let's, let, let's do that, right? But in Leviticus, you get a lot of clean and unclean, right? And so the priests, the Levites, they have to go, and, and if this is unclean, they have to do this to make it clean. If this is uh, clean, this is, this is what it's for. There's foods that are unclean, there's foods that are clean, there's acts and rituals and all this sort of stuff, and all the sacrifices around it. And we read that as 21st century Christians thinking that's just weird, let's just skip over it. But what the Bible is showing us is what sin is and does. It also is showing us what the gospel is and does. The gospel cleanses. Sin pollutes, the gospel cleanses. One passage worth looking at here, and we can look at it, uh, several dozen, is in 1 John. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus uh, cleanses us from all sin. You see there, yes, we are forgiven. Yes, all of that is taken care of. But, but there is an, an, a, a personal effect by which we are cleaned. We are, uh, the shame is dealt with. If we say we have no sin, we deceive only ourselves, right? You're not deceiving anyone else, right? And the truth is not on us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. We'll talk about this tonight. That's, that's both propitiation, forgiveness, and expiation, cleansing. I mean, isn't this, you remember why Jesus touched the leper? You remember the story in, in Matthew 8, we'll probably look at it in a few weeks, first of the year. And there you remember that, that everyone has to stay away from the leper because if you touch the leper, you get leprosy. If only I could think of a modern example of social distancing to keep from getting sick. I, I can't think of one. 
Man, I should Google that. And, but, but Jesus here, he touches the leper. Why? Because he, he, he takes it upon himself, but he doesn't become unclean. He makes the filthy. He makes the dirty. He makes the unclean clean. That's the good news of the gospel. And when this happens, when we come to Christ, we, we discover that we are no longer identified by our past. We're no longer identified by what we've done or what has been done to us. We are cleansed. We are free. Furthermore, we are free to forgive those who, have made, who may have defiled us. Having been forgiven, having been cleansed of much, we can then clean. But you see here, David comes knocking on the door. He thinks it's just a one night with the king, but really he is defiling, he is staining, he is ruining Bathsheba in her life. The second thing we see here about sin is that sin demands. Here what I mean is that sin uh, brings with it consequences. We see that in verse 5, right? It's very, very straightforward. Uh, the woman conceived, notice how she is spoken of. He doesn't care about her name. The woman conceived, and she's pregnant. The one thing David may have feared here, if he ever did count the cost of this wicked action, was the fear that Bathsheba might get pregnant. Let's be honest. This is one of the few things people consider when they engage in fornication. We care little about any damage done to the individual, to ourselves, to marriages, to families, or to others. We will fear pregnancy. And throughout the story of David, we discover that it was the Lord that gave David great success and blessed the Lord, right? But David's success was tied directly to the Lord's goodness, not David's greatness. Why then would David presume that he was exempt from either the consequences of sin or the judgment of God? He gets the judgment of God in chapter 12. Here we see the consequences of his sin in chapter 11. Then again, why are we so quick to receive the grace of God and moan and complain whenever the consequences of our actions or the judgment of God are just as easily given? After breaking his marriage vows in verse 4, the consequences of his actions are highlighted in verse 5. Now, this may be news to some of us, but intimacy produces children. And despite all the pharmaceutical advances of the technology, that has not changed. But you'll notice here, because of this act, she becomes pregnant, and David never once in this chapter cares about the life of that child. He never once cares about taking responsibility. Rather, he wants to push it onto someone else. You see then how sin defiles and sin ruins everything in its midst. Sin has consequences. Apologizing doesn't take it away. Coming to Jesus doesn't make sin uh, and its consequences disappear. Solomon will grow up uh, knowing that he was unplanned. Uh, his, his parents should have never have gotten together. And in the modern sense, he was really unwanted in, in, in some way. And that he had a deceased brother he never got to meet. But it is amazing, isn't it, how we will choose momentary pleasure for a lifetime of suffering. So sin demands, it, it, it has tremendous consequences. And, 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 and typically what happens is when people come to Christ, it's, it's, it's only after those consequences become too great. Don't wait until you get to that point. Thirdly, sin deceives. 
It is natural, and our natural response to sin is deception. Perhaps the most famous example we could give here is, of course, the Watergate scandal from the, from the 1970s. Uh, you remember the slogan that came out of that? Uh, the cover-up was worse than the crime, right? I mean, let's be honest. The, the crime is bad, right? Um, but politicians have done a thousand times worse ever since then, right? I mean, that's, 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 not your party, of course. The other party. I mean, they've done awful things ever since Watergate. But it was the cover-up that made it so bad. Well, David certainly fits in that tradition, doesn't he? After the sin comes the cover-up. No, he's got a few problems. One, uh, Bathsheba knows what happened. His staff knows what happened. And there's going to be a baby. you got to cover it up. You have to cover it up. And so he comes up with, with a plan. Now, you and I, we're, we're no different here, right? I think I've told this story before, but uh, several years ago, we were uh, in the uh, great metropolitan city of Owenton, and we went out to eat. And the place used to be called Scooby, or sorry, Scoopy-Doo. No one calls it that, and I'd be offended if you call it Scoopy-Doo, okay? Scooby-Doo, because that's what we all pronounce it, and, and it's called Scoopy because you can get ice cream. Uh, no one cares. Scooby-Doo. It's not called that anymore. No, I don't care what it's called now. But I, I go there, and I wanted to order a bacon, lettuce, tomato, right? You hungry? Yeah, I've not even had breakfast. I'm starving, right? And, and I love me a good BLT, right? And don't go easy on the bacon. I'm, I'm a Gentile. It's all right, okay? And, but I always say this. I like to have a BLT. Don't toast the bread. And every time I said that for years, guess what they do? They toast that bread. I'm too nice of a guy to say, I'm sorry, ma'am. You're going to have to start over here. I, I, I'm, I'm going to throw a fit over toasted bread. I'm just not going to do that. I'll have my wife do that for me, right? <laughs> I mean, no, no. So I came up with a little plan. I'd say, I would like a BLT. Don't toast the bread. I'm allergic to toast. That's a lie. But I like to think it's such a foolish lie. Usually there's a, what? Okay, now you, now you will remember, don't toast my bread. Well, at Scooby-Doo one time, they didn't toast the bread. That's all I care about. My little lie worked, see? And so I eat, eat, eat it, everything's good. But, but she came back. She said, I'm just curious. I've never met anyone that's allergic to toast. And I realized then that this lie required another lie. I'm not going to stop now. So I said, oh, yeah, it's, it's very rare. One in like several million uh, or seven billion. And, and so what it is, is when you put the bread in the, I'm making this up on top of my head. You put the bread in the toaster, the rays, it, it, something gets onto the bread, some sort of chemical. And I just break out. I get really sick. So it's just, please, I, I just can't eat toast. She goes, that's just so fascinating. I'm sorry you suffer that way, but I mean, this is so fascinating. I've never met anyone like that. Like, yeah, it's rare. Go back to dinner. And then we ate there the next week. I didn't order a BLT. I ordered breakfast because I'm a man, right, from the South. And I got pancakes, eggs, and toast. Yeah. And she stopped me. She said, I thought you're allergic to toasts. Oh, yeah. I'll take a biscuit's. It's amazing, isn't it? That, that even whenever we're joking, and right now I, I'll ask for a Coca-Cola, no ice, because I'm allergic to ice, and it doesn't work as well. But, but, but the toast thing, it, it is, but that's our natural response to sin is to cover up. And so we, in that sense, are just like David. Maybe you have a habit of deleting files, using a secretive different email address or account. 
staying hidden in the dark, buying a different phone that no one knows about, denying a relationship, acting surprised or even offended whenever you are confronted. You've known me all your life. Does that sound like something I would do? Isolating ourselves even more, stepping away from worship. I mean, the options are endless what it is that we try. And all these options end up pushing ourselves away from others, from people we are called to love. As a result, there's greater division in our life, greater loneliness in our lives. Consider the great links that David went through in this cover-up. In verses 6 to 7, David manipulates Uriah. I'm sure you know it well. He, he brings Uriah home, right? It's saving private Uriah. He brings him home and he says, look, uh, you're a great soldier. Uh, I need you to do a few things, but here, enjoy the evening with your wife. And we know exactly what it is that David is doing. He will allow that his child, his own child, will grow up not knowing that he is not the son of Uriah and Bathsheba. He will allow that that to happen and so he he brings Uriah in and uh, he asks him there in verse 5 to 7 how are things on the western front and you sort of wonder if Uriah is is on to something here I, mean, I don't know it's not in the text but why would the king call a mercenary a mere soldier rather than a general to to get an update why call Uriah and not Joab? I, I, I wasn't in the military, but I can sort of understand the, 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 the top-down nature of it, right? You don't go get a private. You go get someone with, with, with more decorations on their vest, right? So I do wonder if maybe he was on to it. But maybe this is just part of the narrative David had concocted to throw Uriah off. Maybe he was just trying to make Uriah feel important because he got a private meeting with the king, which is an abuse of authority abuse of his position. Regardless, David tries to manipulate an innocent victim of this story. Not only that, but he tries to manipulate his own child, verses 8 through 11. So after quizzing Uriah, he sends him home. Now, I want you you to to do this. Go back to verse 4. It says, she returned home. That's how it ends there, right? Now, go down to verse 8. David said, Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. I wish we had time to talk about that. You talk about manipulation. I mean, that's manipulation. But notice there, David's actions has Uriah follow the same path that Bathsheba had to follow in the dead of night so that no one would have to know. You see what, see what sin does? He doesn't care about people. He doesn't care about their stories, their struggles, or, or, or their value. Hey, you're right. Come, come, come to my office, right? And when you go home, be sure you follow this direction. By the way, you don't know this, but your wife went the same direction the other nights. I mean, it's evil. He is no doubt trying to manipulate the marriage. Maybe he thinks, as the old saying goes, that absence makes the heart grow fonder. So he assumes that their absence from each other would would make the reunion a foregone conclusion by which he could blame the pregnancy on Uriah, not himself. We do need to pause to consider how evil this really is. David would, again, rather abandon his own child than take responsibilities for his actions. And let's be honest, this unnamed child is not the last child that that is their story. It's amazing how pro-choice the most ardent churchgoer can become whenever they're the ones with the baby and not the one holding the sign. 
But thirdly, notice, David manipulates Uriah's character. To David's disappointment there in verses 12 to 13, Uriah refuses to sleep with his wife, while his fellow soldiers are at war sleeping in the trenches. So David tries to manipulate Uriah yet again. Yet this time, he adds alcohol. After all, David knows his Bible. He demonstrates that later in the story, doesn't he? He knows his Bible. It worked for Lot's daughters. All they had to do was get their father drunk. They can get him to do anything. You've got to think maybe David assumes the same thing. Get a man drunk, you'll ruin his character. You'll ruin his reputation. It's evil, isn't it? It's evil. Yet despite David's best efforts, Uriah doesn't give in. Now, now don't, don't miss that detail. The writer is trying to show the reader something here. Uriah is the better man. A Gentile, a Hittite, an enemy of Israel. He's the better man. This pagan is more righteous than the anointed king of Israel. I love this. I'm stealing this from, from every, I think, pastor has said this. Uriah drunk was better than David sober. The key verse here is in verse 11. Verse 11. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. That's the key verse. Notice there, it is the pagan who mentions the ark of the covenant. You remember the thing that, that, that caused all that domestic problems in the first place? David is celebrating God's presence with his people. God's presence is, is here in Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of peace. God's presence. One of these days we're going to build up a permanent location where, where the, the nations will gather. And Solomon will experience that the nations will gather the worship of the Lord and our borders will extend and the Garden of Eden will be realized. But when, when David is trying to cover up his sin, he never once considers the ark that he had brought back, which lies right next door. It's amazing, isn't it, how sin blinds us to the glory and goodness and holiness of Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? In fact, notice there at the end of verse 11, Uriah says from his own mouth, I will not do this thing. That should have been what David said when he looked out his window and he saw a woman bathing in the distance. But he didn't. He didn't. Rather, he chose to surrender to sin and to deceive everyone involved. Finally, sin destroys. If plan A was to manipulate Uriah and Bathsheba to cover up his sin, there was always plan B. When it comes to covering up our sin, there is always an option we never thought we would go that far. Every public scandal, that, that comes out, right? the extent of the cover-up, and what the person will usually confess is, I never thought I would do something like that. And I seriously doubt David ever, when he saw Bathsheba, thought, I am going to have to kill her husband. I doubt that ever crossed his mind. I'm sure if someone said, if you do this, you're going to end up having to kill Uriah, he would laugh at such a suggestion because he is too holy of a person. He was raised right. But here he is. There is no limit you and I will go to cover up our sin. 
We will fight. We will scream. We will connive. We will silence critics. We will quit our jobs. We will change churches. We will blame shift. We will terrorize. We will delete. We will destroy. We will hide. We will dig. We will steal. We will manipulate. We will murder. We will do anything so that we're the righteous one and anyone else, anyone else can be the guilty one. And so he rationalized verses 14 to 15, if manipulation won't work, there must be murder. And what makes this so dastardly is that David has Uriah carry his own death sentence with him, right? It is right there in verse 14 and 15. It is right there in the text, right? He says, oh, hey, Uriah, give this to your general Joab. And in the letter, sealed letter, what is said, make sure he dies. And here comes Uriah. Hey, boss. The king has something to tell you. This reminds me whenever I was growing up, I had a babysitter who spanked. I know you young people are triggered by that. You'll be okay. It'll be okay. Uh, one of those weird drinks of Starbucks would be all that you need and, and maybe a, a safe space with kittens and, I don't know, Barney or something. But, but, but she would say, all right, you're in trouble. Go outside and go pick out a switch. You, you, you had one of those monsters, didn't you, right? Right? No, she, she was a – I didn't get that many spankings. My brother, on the other hand, did not get enough. See, <laughs> see, I mean, he got more, yeah, but just wasn't enough. You met him last week. So, 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 so in verses 16 to 21 is, is how that deed is done. They go to war, they put Uriah in the front, put in the most dangerous place where all the mighty men of, of the Ammonites are, and, and he, he dies. And notice here, Joab knows what David's going to do because he knows David's going to be like, why did Joab do this? And the reason is because, well, I had to kill Uriah. So we had to do something foolish. And, and he says, David's going to use a biblical example of, of uh, Abinadab. And Abinadab was a foolish king who got too close to the wall, and a woman dropped a millstone on his head. Now, what's interesting about that story is that story mirrors the story of Saul. Remember, when Saul was mortally wounded, he asked his servant to kill him. Abinadab did the same exact thing. Except in Abinadab's case, he was actually killed by his servants. You see what David just indicts himself? Because he is that king. He is just like Saul. He is just like Abinadab. He's destroyed life. In fact, notice his callousness in verses 22 to 25, uh, particularly verse 25. You shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack in the city and overthrow it. Did you see what he said there? Joab, Uriah is just a soldier. A Gentile one at that. He won't be missed. Soldiers die. We move on. It's amazing. I bet his morning reading that day was Genesis 1 about being made in the image of God. And he couldn't care less about Uriah. Sin destroys it ruins lives. It dehumanizes other people. And they become tools or obstacles rather than objects of love. Well, the chapter ends tragically. It zeroes in on Bathsheba, but, 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 but you notice there she's, she's not named, is she? She's referred to as the wife of Uriah. Because the writer doesn't want you to forget that. 
Her husband is killed, dead. Her encounter with David left her a widow with child. In fact, there's an interesting word used here. Notice in verse 26 that she laments. Your, your translation may say mourn. I, they're, they're per, both are perfectly fine, of course. It's not a word used very often up to this point in the Bible. In fact, I can give you almost, we're not going to do every single one of them, but I can give you the far majority of every reference. Do you care if we do that just real quick? We've got plenty of time before choir practice. Let's just do that real quick, okay? The first instance is in Genesis 23 when Sarah, the wife of Abraham, dies. Notice, Sarah died at Hebron in the land of Canaan. Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Same word. Or we can look at Jacob in chapter 50. When they came to the threshing floor of Etad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. He made a mourning for his father seven days. What about when Samuel died in 1 Samuel 25? It says, now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and lamented, they mourned. Or consider 2 Samuel 1. They mourned and wept. This is the death of Saul and Jonathan and the others. And fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Now that is, that is the majority, the far majority. I may have skipped one or two. Do you see a pattern with each of these? In each example, no one mourned alone. Abraham has, has, has his entire community around him. Jacob has his sons there to mourn, Joseph and everyone. Samuel has all of Israel. Saul and Jonathan have David and all of Israel. All of them gather and they mourn the loss of this, of this precious person in their life, except one person thus far, and that's Bathsheba. She's there in her home, crying alone. Sin destroys David is willing to take her body, but he will not love her soul. Sin destroys. And you have to ask, was, was, was it all worth it? A moment of indiscretion, a moment of weakness, a moment of foolishness, a moment of selfishness, a moment of wickedness has left behind a widow pregnant woman pregnant with child, and a father who couldn't care less. But there is good news here. And the good news is that the gospel that cleanses is the gospel that redeems. And let us not overlook the fact that David is not a lost pagan sinning. He is a believer in Christ who has committed these acts. And the same gospel that saves the lost is the same one that sanctifies the believer. And chances are you and I have a stain on our soul. We have a need for grace. We have a need for mercy and forgiveness. And the answer is found in Christ. That is made very clear in chapter 12 when Nathan shows up. One of my favorite hymns of all time is It Is Well With My Soul. The context of it has to deal with the suffering of, um, well, he loses his, his, his family, essentially, in a, in a tragic accident. It's one of the middle verses that always sticks out to me. 
my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. So I don't know what burdens you are carrying here. I don't know what stains are upon your soul here this morning. I don't. But the good news is all of it can be nailed to the cross. It is a burden and a stain we no longer need to carry if we come to Christ with a repentant heart. Will you do that in this time of invitation? Let's pray.